This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that proves award season goes all year round. I am Katie Rich, the deputy editor for VanityFair.com. I'm here with our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello. And our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, guys. I realize saying Vanity Fair three times just kind of wore me out. No, that's brand brand awareness. I like this. So we've got a lot of fun stuff to talk about this week, and uh, Joanna is freshly back from Los Angeles, and I think your PaleyFest adventures are very well covered on VF.com, but I wanted to quickly quiz you about your experience of being inside the Dolby Theater and your revelation in there, which, sorry, the Dolby Theater, which is where the Oscars happen, which is why we're talking about it on this podcast. Right. And I got kind of excited. I was like, oh, I'm going to the Dolby Theater where they have the Oscars. And I've seen the red carpet leading up to the Dolby Theater a million times. I know what this looks like. And then I got there. And, you know, every resident of LA can probably tell you and Richard could tell you and Mike could tell you. I'm just the last to know (laughs) that the Dolby Theater is inside like a like low rent mall. Not like it's middle of the road. There's no Apple store in this mall. Boy, Vanity Fair is really rubbing off on you, Joanna. You're such a cultural (laughs) elitist. Well, I'm just saying, like, you know, I, I'm from the Bay Area. I've seen, I, I know Palo Alto. I've seen some, like, snobby malls. This is not one of those. There's a right. Hot Topic there. There's a Cold Stone <laughs> Creamery, you know? Like, yeah. I went to the Hot Topic next to the Dolby Theater. So, did you buy anything? Um, I did not, but we messed with some of their displays. Don't tell them. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just a weird experience. And then going inside, I was like, ah, this is the view I recognize. And walking up, I can see how they mask it a little bit. Like, it's partially recognizable to me. But uh, next time, you, when you watch the Oscars next year, guys, or go back and rewatch the tape of that you have saved of old red carpeted experiences or whatever, uh, <laughs> look for <laughs> the mallness of it all because it's there. So. Uh, I was there uh, for two days in a row uh, last April writing of – piece about american idol the end of american idol where they and they had the the show there for the finale Mm -hmm. episodes um and i am not too ashamed to admit that i um before each show the the the, the penultimate and the final show um i had a drink by myself at the hard rock cafe (laughs) really (laughs) well it was the only place around that was like semi like i could get a seat or whatever there's a california pizza kitchen as well so you know (laughs) well what's the hotel next door because the closest i ever got to going to the oscars was sitting in the bar of the hotel next door with my laptop during the Oscars so that I could then go to the governor's ball, which is upstairs in the mall. Yeah. It's all, it's but, all there. I mean, yeah. It's a terrible section of LA and you no. Know. Yeah. Hollywood and Highland. It's insane that the governor's ball is upstairs in the mall. That's crazy. Yeah. That's where they inscribe the Oscars guys. Yep. So. yep. Where the magic happens. And this makes me think like Carnegie hall is like this beautiful stately building that's by itself. And it like, it looks as great in real life as it does on television. Same with radio city. So mm-hmm. New York, triumphs well that's i mean it's perfect hollywood thing of like we can make <laughs> a show anywhere television. you know yeah, yeah right. let's, let's yeah, do it set it up set, in the desert set overnight up, set up a curtain that blocks out the cold stone and yep. then mm-hmm. uh, the, 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 they do the emmys at the airport yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, really, it's really amazing at the avis actually where you pick up your car <laughs> that's right. yeah 
So, Joanna, after all of your traveling for Paley Fest and hanging out at the Dolby Theater, you've also been uh, kind of piecing together a trend that's been going on around us that is maybe the opposite of what the Academy was trying to do with all the rules changes. Whitewashing still hasn't gone away, and it has been biting a lot of people in the ass lately. Uh, What have you been noticing there? Well, you know, I mean, I'm certainly not the person to notice this trend, but there's been a lot of social media furor over the casting of white actors in roles that either were originally written as or could have gone to an Asian actor. And I think what we're looking at now is maybe we're at a tipping point where financially casting a white actor actually might hurt your project more than it helps. Cause originally, you know, the idea was you cast a Matt Damon in the great wall to make the great wall more appealing to a broader audience. Um, but if the sort of stink of a whitewashing controversy is hurting the bottom line, I think that is actually where we're going to see progress on this particular topic. Yeah. And with Iron Fist on Netflix, like we can't really know what the financial impact is there, but the response was so scathing that it feels like there had to have been something. Well, the only metric I could come up with for Iron Fist, because cause the Rotten Tomatoes split is the same as it was for like Suicide Squad, where it's like 85% positive by, you know, audiences and 17% rotten by critics. But I, I find the Rotten Tomatoes metric to be wildly inaccurate of, of anything. But the, uh, the Netflix star rating is interesting to me because Jessica Jones and Daredevil both have like five stars by user ratings and Luke, uh, Luke Cage has four and a half stars and then Iron Fist has two stars. Mm. So by Netflix's own metric, the only one they will release to the public, Iron Fist has a negative response. Whether or not they got as many eyeballs on it as they want, we will never know. So, And they're about to get rid of the star rating, so... Our time to know (laughs) is going away. Oh, no, our last vestige of knowing. Doesn't it seem like there's a huge just missed opportunity? I I genuinely think people just have their heads up their ass on this topic because you have there's so much goodwill to be taken advantage of, even cynically, um, from, you know, audiences that feel underrepresented. Mm -hmm. There's so much easy, free, good press to be had. Why the hell would you then turn it in the other direction? Unless, Unless it's like... Do you think, Joanna, that this is really short-sighted bean counters inside the studios who are just like, oh, no, this person's curating is higher than this person and they're not looking at the big picture? Or is it unimaginative directors? What is causing the issue? Because it seems blatantly obvious that this is just dumb, even as you're saying, like financially, let alone, you know, whatever moral element is involved. Well, I think we're just seeing a we're in the middle of a change. Like we will look back on this and think it's like, you know, it's not quite Mickey Rooney and, and Breakfast at Tiffany's, right? It's not as bad, quote unquote, as that. But I think we will look back on this time and see, you know, Scarlett Johansson playing a character who's called Major Matoko Kusanagi as like a really bad idea. That's her but- name. Jesus. I mean, she. I think she's just referred to as Major in the film, but that is the character's name. Yeah. You know what? You're absolutely right. It's just we're on a in the middle of a transition. Yeah, exactly. And and so like if you look like, you know, it's like I think it's like black. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble for comparing whitewashing to blackface. But like there was a time when everyone was like, yeah, this is OK. And then yeah. there was a time where it was like, this is maybe not OK. And now yeah. it's like that is really not okay well when i look back at stuff from when i was growing up or whatever you know we just watched um my fiance and i watched bonfire of the vanities which is not a good movie but there's an amazing book about what a disaster the making of the movie was which i recently read and there's some 
incredibly problematic stuff, racial stuff in that movie that is from 1990, which, you know, I was 15 years old. I remember seeing like, it at the time, and that's not what I was thinking about. Well, that was about. like Central Park Five era, right? Like, yeah, the, I mean, they, they, they get stuck. Tom Hanks, you mm-hmm. know, and Melanie Griffith gets stuck in the Bronx, which is like, I mean, the Bronx was tough back then, but this is like way the hell over the top. It's just, you know, it's Tom Wolf. But anyway, watching it, you're just like, wow, we've come a long way since mm-hmm. I was 15. Yeah. But, you know, that there's a lot of people who were 40 who are in power positions when mm-hmm. that movie came out. Yeah. Right. And, and they're not necessarily not... woke yet. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there are distinctions to be made between these two examples. But looking at something like The Departed, which came out in 2006, which is a, a remake of a Chinese film, Infernal Affairs. Um, and I don't remember there being any sort of like frustration around that. And I think probably the distinction that a lot of people see there is adapting a Chinese story or an Asian story and really changing the culture, like The Magnificent Seven or right. something like that. Really updating, yeah. like anchoring The Departed in the Boston crime scene yeah. changes the culture significantly. But when you have something like Death Note, which is an upcoming Netflix movie adapted from a very popular manga, uh, Japanese manga, and you don't change the culture very much, and you have Willem Dafoe playing like this character called Ryuk, which is a Japanese like death god. It's just like it's you need to, I think, really put a significant cultural topspin on an adaptation of an Asian property to get away with things. Simply changing the last name is not going to do it for you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, so with Death Note, the main actors in that are Nat Wolf, Margaret Qualley, Shea Wiggum are all playing characters who have been sort of Japanese and other adaptations of this story. So uh, that's another that's another Netflix property that is getting a lot of pushback right now. So uh, like I, I I am curious to see, you know, because there's a whole list of this. There's like Last Airbender, Exodus, Pan. These are all things that sort of weathered and, and Persia. Prince of Persia, Aloha, these are all things that sort of came up against that controversy and then did poorly at the box office, whether or not you can draw a one-to-one comparison, because of course, Doctor Strange did quite well at the box office. Um, It seems to me to be a trend where for your business, it makes sense to wake up. Well, that'll complete the transition. The transition starts when activists say, hey, wait a minute, we're upset about this and begin changing people's consciousness. Now there's enough people changed where it feels off. And the only way to successfully run your business is to acknowledge the new reality. That will that will. I mean, it seems obvious that that will end it. Yeah. I mean, it's always it's a familiar story of Hollywood being like four years behind wherever culture is. I mean, you see that saw that in like the 60s where the mainstream movies were just so out of touch with what culture was. And it happens in smaller ways every year. But they can be ahead, too. Or, or Oh, sure. Certainly. Know, yeah. You know, I, this is not necessarily a whitewashing issue, but I just it just popped into my head while you guys were talking is. Can you imagine a movie like Save the Last Dance being made now? Oh yeah, where she's like doing like <laughs> this street white urban girl dancing. who just like invades the or not I mean, yeah, it kind of invades these black spaces and then triumphs and like I don't know, it's just like I don't know. But at the time when I was a teenager, that movie was like I mean, it wasn't hip exactly. We all knew it was a little lame, but like Yeah, but no, but like you know. teenagers saw it. Yeah, oh for sure. I keep thinking about like the Eddie Murphy movies like um Beverly Hills Cop or Trading Places. Like I can't decide to what extent were they radical in an amazing way, to what extent are they super problematic and dated. They're kind I of just like think a about bit mixed. The, yeah. I think of the uh, the old men who orchestrate everything in Trading Places and how they're just basically the Koch brothers. Like it was very out of its time in that way. Uh-huh. I, I watch Trading Places almost every year because it's like a 
Christmas tradition in my family. And like, you know, Eddie Murphy is there doing his great Eddie Murphy stuff, but like every other black character in that movie is a terrible, terrible like stereotype. Does Dan Aykroyd do blackface in that movie? Yeah, he does. (laughs) <laughs> Our producer Alana is nodding very vigorously. Yeah, it's been, it's been a long time since so, I've seen it. Yeah. As Mike was saying, since the '80s, we've made a lot of progress. Yeah, a lot of progress. A lot of progress. So, um, we will see. So, you know, we're, we're recording this the week before Ghost in the Shell comes out. Ghost in the Shell, I think, has been held back from. I think critic screenings are like tomorrow or something. But like, it's been held back. Yeah, they're they're really delaying it. Yeah. Yeah, they kind of seem to rather that movie not exist, even exactly. though they spent how many millions on it. I think one of the stories that really hurt Ghost in the Shell was this news that broke on Screen Crush that Lola FX, this FX studio, did CGI tests to see if they could change white features to look more Asian for that film. And though Paramount denies that they were ever going to do that to Scarlett Johansson, this reported story says that that was something they were considering doing, was basically like CG taping her eyes to be more slanted. And that's like, guys, that's, no, come on. Oh, no. So, uh, yeah, Ghost in the Shell, we'll see what happens at the box office. Scarlett Johansson, of course, like, has kind of a good record of open, you know, she opened Lucy sort of to the surprise of everyone. So this might do well. But, uh, you know, if it doesn't do well, it might be sort of the nail in the coffin, hopefully, of this trend. But it would be interesting, you know, the excuse, I assume, would be, there's not a movie star big enough to anchor, you know, this 180 million or whatever it is movie um, in your chosen ethnic group. And then so to actually solve it would involve actually Turning spending the time in developing talent over a long period of time and not just resting on the idea. Like there's all these crazy stereotypes like, oh, in, uh, you know, in Russia, they won't go. I don't know. There's, there's all this stuff about like overseas black actors don't sell. And somebody just recently did a takedown of that. Yeah, LA Times wrote yeah. 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 And also like the the power of movie stars. I mean, we talk about this. Like I'm looking at the box office. Split is the number five movie of the year so far. It's made $137 million. James McAvoy didn't sell that movie. Get Out right. is number four movie. It doesn't have major stars in it. I think right. there's a, there's Allison a, Williams is huge in China. <laughs> they love girls, right? Mm-hmm. Catherine Keener's big in, in Brazil. You know, <laughs> there there are reasons for that. So yeah, as much as they want to hang on to the star system and the idea that the right star can sell your movie, I think that's the more that falls apart. Hopefully, the more room there is to like have different people leading these movies. Is Pacific Rim considered a box office? You know, so it made four hundred million worldwide on a hundred ninety million budget. I think it was considered not as successful as it might have been. But your female lead in that movie is Rinko Kikuchi, Oscar nominated Rinko Kikuchi, and so I think a lot of people. I mean, you hate to just come up with one name, but I think a lot of people were like, "Well, if Pacific Rim opened, obviously it's not a sort of person based film in any stretch of the imagination." But like, I feel like you could have put a Japanese actress in this role and got a lot more people excited about it especially people who like the original manga like the original anime adaptation of it to be like completely fair as we're talking about this that character is like technically like a synthetic android so i think one of the things they're saying is that she's not really human so she's raceless so it doesn't matter and you know scarlett johansson herself has said similar she's like i wouldn't oh she says I think this character is living a very unique experience in that she has a human brain and an entirely machinate body. She's essentially identity-less. I would never attempt to play a person of different race, obviously. Hopefully any question that comes up in my casting will be answered by audiences when they see the film. But the question, I guess, we have is, will enough people go see the film to give it that chance? Yeah. Or should they? 
Well, I guess we'll report back next week on the Ghost in the Shell box office results. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, actually, more speaking about the modern Oscars, we're going to have Rebecca Keegan on later to talk about the meeting that the Academy is having kind of as we speak. By the time you hear this, it will have already happened to kind of just postmortem this year's Oscars, which, as you might remember, were weirder than usual. But first, we thought it was time for a flashback because we haven't talked about feud or at least in detail in a couple of weeks. And uh, the episodes that are airing this past Sunday and then this coming Sunday all both concern the Oscars, which are our favorite topic, obviously. So it's a surprisingly detailed look inside the 1963 Oscars where you not only have Betty Davis, who's up for the Best Actress Prize, but you got to really get deep into the campaign process. And this episode airs on Sunday, so we don't want to spoil it too much, but also it's real life, so I don't know how much we can spoil. <laughs> yeah, so the nominations episode was has happened. Yeah, yeah. so that um, the episode ends with Joan Crawford screaming in her house because right. she didn't get nominated. Right, which is uh, among one of the more outsized moments of that show, I would say. Well, it's like a horror movie because you hear the phones being off the hook and she like right, wanders through the, the ma- house. Her, her trusty maid slash like l- sort of life servant has has <laughs> taken all the phones off the hook so she doesn't find out. Which is genius. But I think that the, the nominations episode is really fun because I think I meant, said this briefly last week, but like it was fun watching me like, oh, look, all these people talking about Oscar nominations and really taking it seriously. It was kind of like, oh, we're, we're not, I know we have <laughs> we're not, not insane. insane. Yeah. We're not totally yeah, insane. Like, it, or, like, you know, I, I don't know what, how accurate this is but like these people do care like you know they talk about it like they you know. oh yeah it was just like a fun and was you know I, I watched those episodes you know a while back while the award season was still happening you know so i could write about it so i was really in the thick of award season and watching that then it was kind of surreal mm-hmm. but but also kind of great though you do wonder if some of the strategizing is you know contemporary screenwriters looking at how insane it all is now it's hard and to ref- know reflecting yeah back yeah. And I mean, the, you imagine that Hollywood back then was even more of a provincial town than it is now. Like it's a, it was yeah. smaller. There are more people in L.A. because there's a moment where Hedda Hopper is talking to Joan Crawford and kind of scheming with her. And it's like, Betty Davis isn't one of us. Like she's not of yeah. Hollywood. And Joan Crawford spent decades in Hollywood, like being married to the president of the board of Pepsi and like being involved in everything. And you can see how it's like, well, you're the most popular lady in town, so you should win the Oscar. But it didn't work that way. Right. Well, and a hundred percent the retail politicking mm-hmm. and the floating of negative narratives are real. Like yeah. that definitely happens. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know that the actresses themselves would ever do that these days. There are plenty of paid people to do that for them. Yeah. But um but they're you know, I think that the talent is frequently involved in the strategizing. Yeah. In case people aren't watching Feud or haven't seen the episode, I think the what I found most reflective in the nomination episode of the race we were talking about this year is the idea of who's going to go into supporting. Cause you've got Joan Crawford mm-hmm. and Betty Davis who are co-leads like undeniably co-leads and whatever happened to baby Jane, the smart strategy would have been to put one of them in lead and one of them in supporting. But even if Joan Crawford had gone into supporting, she wasn't taken very seriously as an actress, just generally in her life, even though she won an Oscar mm-hmm. and neither actress will budge and move into the supporting category. And so they're both, they're both running in lead and then only Betty Davis gets the nomination. And that, honestly, like, you know, having seen the movie, it's been a while, but I kind of, I don't think they should have, like, I think that whole, I mean, we talked about this with Viola Davis, like the, idea of moving and supporting to make it easier i don't like it yeah i mean yeah. that that's a two lead movie mm-hmm. you know and i think that exactly. it's a bad thinking that sort of i don't know w- what came first but like you know 
I think Thelma Louise, we, we talked about this was the last movie that two yeah. lead actresses were nominated for Oscars. That is a reflection of sort of campaigning, but it's also a reflection of like what kind of movies are being made, you mm-hmm. know? And I think that to acquiesce to the idea that only one woman could be the lead of a movie where instead of two, it's like, I mean, the same is true of actors, but yeah. But yeah. Um, I think the other thing that is funny to, in watching the episodes of Feud and then kind of reading about the real life Oscar race that year is that like, so Joan Crawford had one for Mildred Pierce and Betty Davis had two for mm-hmm. Jezebel and I forgot the other one. But she really wanted to become the first person to ever win three Oscars. Yeah. And, you know, Joan was not going to catch up to that. But I just think it's, it's funny that like even 50 years ago, the Oscars were still at that point 20 something years old, mm-hmm. 30 something years old, that people cared about these kind of records and statistics and horse racing. It's just funny how quickly a community can rally around <laughs> awards you know and yeah like there's that. nobody questioning at this time like is this even worth it like, right no one care I it's mean, like that's, it's at not least like in the in the version on the show no right one's having existential doubts about the oscars yeah it was only about twice as old as like the cable ace awards were before right. before they went away <laughs> and yeah and but people are like really care about it like it really means something. well actually i think the people who do have more existential doubts maybe are the younger actresses that joan is ultimately are we talking are we spoiling the next episode here i mean she, we can talk about who's nominated, at least, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's real life. And what Joe Crawford did. <laughs> right. So so what Joan did was cut a deal with, what, Geraldine Page and Anne Bancroft, right? That mm-hmm. if, yeah. if they won, she would accept on their behalf. Yeah. Because why should you bother going to L.A.? You're, you know, you're in New York. That That's where real acting is done. I mean, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's no, well, and, Bancroft and, was doing a play, right? Yeah. And uh-huh. then she kind of convinced Geraldine Page that like oh it's so much hassle with the dress and everything and you're right. so, you're so New York and she's like yeah. so I'll just do it it's just I'll, I'll you know but that's unthinkable now but like so that that's a narrative that you could not do now like because there's nobody on earth who would have just been like great you just accept for me I won't go right. to the Oscars yeah. like so there it was yeah, a little rinky dink in yeah. comparison to today it was more of a local event yeah, because uh, like the show does right. a lot of stressing between L.A. and New York and like the Betty Davis was this East Coast person who was an interloper. The Oscars were sort of like, oh, this little party that ha- th- not little, but like this party that happens in L.A. Yeah. So it was kind of it was conceivable that, you know, some sort of like not unknown, but smaller actress who in an apartment in New York would be like, oh, I guess I don't have to go to that. Right. Yeah. You know? well, well, and I guess Darlene Page had been nominated the year before. So maybe right. she was kind of over it. But also, this is probably the beginning of it's 1963. It's the beginning of Hollywood lunging for that New York style credibility. And it was probably easier as a New York actor to be like, oh, yeah, the bunch of, you know, jackasses out there probably it was also more of a pain to fly cross country, you know, all the oh, right. nicer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nicer, yeah. but it took longer. <laughs> You know, not to spoil it too much, but you know, Ryan Murphy called his stalwart Sarah Paulson to play Geraldine Page, and uh, that scene where Joan is just hot, like it's not just that scene. By my interpretation, not so much like oh, you're a New York a New York actress, don't bother. It was sort of like getting in her head about like how her dress wouldn't look good, you know, like all this critique and Mm -hmm. like basically scaring her out of going to the Oscars, which, you know, I don't know how accurate that is, but Sarah Paulson plays it really well. Oh my God, that scene is, she's like, we talk about Sarah Paulson on the show all the time because of People versus OJ, but she's so good in that scene. Like Mm -hmm. she does so much in just one moment. And she, you know, as far as I know, she's not in the rest of the series. And there is vindication in knowing that many, many, many years later, Geraldine Page did finally win her Oscar for the trip to Bountiful. So in like 85. Oh God, yeah, that's Right. Um, a movie that my dad made me watch when I was a kid, and oh boy, it's about an old lady on a bus. <laughs> it's pretty boring. Taking a trip to Bountiful, um, eh? Yeah, but I think that even if you haven't been watching Feud, 
but you care about the Oscars, this coming episode that's set at the Oscars is yes. worth watching mm-hmm. because it's a really fun imagine, like, or uh, not really recreation, but like imagining of what, um, what that ceremony was like and what the backstage scene was like. Uh, uh, it, it, there's a lot of fun details that are extrapolated from real history and then a lot that are sort of, you know, made up probably, but yeah. add to the fun. I saw this episode a little while ago. Is my memory that they never show anyone playing Catherine Hepburn that you just get like a no? I don't think she showed up. Shot from outside her house, and she's like, yeah, called recluse because she didn't bother to go to the Oscars yeah. at that point. And she never, she never did. I don't think. Yeah, yeah she never accepted any of her. Oscars? I don't think so. No. God. Yeah, I don't think there's a photo of her holding the statue, which is insane, right? Yeah, that is crazy. <laughs> she has four. They do like a newsreel in the very beginning, and they kind of dispatch right. with Catherine Hepburn and Lee Remick and make it about Geraldine Page and Anne Bancroft and have her visiting them. The Anne Bancroft scene is great too where she goes and intimidates her in her dressing room and both Anne Bancroft and Geraldine Page have this like sense of recognition that like Joan Crawford has been like victimized by Hollywood and this is what she's turned into this woman who wants to basically go steal someone else's Oscar right and then you look at the I mean again spoilers for real life like you look at the pictures of her with all the other three winners you know the classic picture they always take and it's like her and Patty Duke and two other men and she looks kind of nuts like she's got this yeah. like the, the, the silver the real counter. picture yeah the real picture yeah. I'm gonna pull it up so we can see this in, yeah I was uh, looking at it earlier it's insane that the class photo from that year has Joan Crawford <laughs> in it yeah like go up there and accept the award is weird enough but to be in the class photo is bonkers it would be like Sasheen Littlefeather being yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's Gregory Peck for uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and it's really oh and she yeah and she did herself up in all the silver I mean it's, that's a black and white photo but yeah it's yeah sp- look it up guys it's it's um. Yeah, well, I, I mean, mean, so that that speaks to something not to get too deep into this, but um, as the Rush Limbaugh or at least Bill Maher of this podcast, Don um, Imus, Don, the Don <laughs> Imus of this podcast, you know, there's been some talk and people writing about the idea that Joan Crawford has had a bad rap that, you know, maybe sexism is played and I'm sure sexism plays into everything and including this. But what I like about what Ryan Murphy is trying to do with the show is not shy away from the fact that like the behavior was pretty bananas Mm -hmm. and that these two would have been probably very difficult women to deal with in your life but to keep drilling down to say so why were they that way Mm -hmm. and get you to empathize without denying the fact that like they were hard to deal with yeah you know it's not it's not about whitewashing their behavior and saying oh no actually she was a saint-like figure who Mm -hmm. was totally whose reputation was manipulated i'm sure there was not the most generous gloss on everything but that's the point of the show and same thing he did with marcia clark Mm -hmm. to say like what's behind this image that you see and without shying away from the dark side of it how do we get to a place where there's understanding yeah. And humanity, recognition of the humanity. Yeah, because you see, like, they've been kind of pitted against each other for their entire careers. Like, there's the right. great, the great flashback where Joan comes to, um, MGM or, uh, no, yeah, Warner. Warner Brothers. And she has a scene with, uh, Stanley Tucci where she basically, like, you know, invites him to sleep with her because that was how she knew she could get ahead. Right. And, like, he's no saint either, but you're kind of pulled for both of them because they're both entertaining. Like, it's letting you right. root for the pains in the ass who run Hollywood. Well, and to see that that was the tactic, that was just, like, the move that she had mm-hmm. in her arsenal. Yeah. And, 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 you know, like, what was she going to do? Not use it? But yeah. That's so um, I so I really do admire that about the show. I'm sure, you know, look, it's, it's also fun to watch crazy catfight behavior. Mm-hmm. But I feel like Ryan Murphy has done a to me a good job of really kind of making sure that there's that layer of empathy going on the whole time. It's yeah. not just pure stereotype of people behaving horribly. I think my initial criticism of the show was actually that I didn't I was having trouble locating the humanity inside of the Betty Davis and Joan Crawford characters and seeing beyond, especially Susan Sarandon, like um, 
a recreation of an icon. Do you know what I mean? Because these two women were so, you know, I've seen like drag performers do these women for years. Like they, they are iconic in their look and in their delivery and all that sort of stuff. So to find the humanity there. And I, t- I think it took a few episodes for me to get there. And, and Susan Sarandon herself has given interviews where she said she struggled to sort of like locate the human inside of the icon that was Betty Davis. You know, this is a, is it an eight episode series season? Yeah. I think we're really getting to the meat of it now, like sort of about halfway through the season. So that's, that's great. Yeah. You know, and I think the thing I said weeks ago about the show that I like is that it's forced me to kind of go or not force me, but encourage me to go back and read about this stuff and, and watch interviews with the real life people. There are a lot more, there's a lot more tape of Betty Davis than there was Joan Crawford. Mm -hmm. Betty Davis did a lot of talk shows later in her life. But you see Betty Davis on, you know, Dick Cavett or whatever it is. She was a completely over the top character. I mean, she, yeah. you know, like, and, and if anything, Susan Sarandon plays her kind of down. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Joan Crawford, you know, famously has admitted herself to throwing her co-star's clothing into the street while shooting Johnny Guitar. <laughs> Mercedes McCambridge, who I had this quote up and I'm going to read it because it's so fun. Um, <laughs> so Mercedes McCambridge was, uh, who was in Johnny Guitar with Joan Crawford. Was she much younger? Uh, yeah. She, well, I, yeah. Uh, but she said um, about Joan Crawford, she was a, quote, a, a mean, tipsy, powerful, rotten egg lady. <laughs> <laughs> so people were saying these things. I mean, this wasn't like it's not gay men like, you know, 50 years later kind of making up a mythology yeah, yeah, yeah. about. I mean, yeah. Speaking of gay men 50 years later, but still, do you, have we discussed the my favorite story from the Betty Davis uh, piece that Bill Fry wrote? William Fry was a producer who was friends with all these gals. And, and back in the day, I used to go with my boss to Palm Springs and we'd sit and listen to all of his stories and transcribe them. And, and he would tell, so we did a whole one on Betty Davis. When are you going to write a screenplay about that? Uh, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It ran in 2010. It's called The Devil and Miss Davis. You can read it. But after the Oscar ceremony, Betty's with Bill. And the first thing Betty did was take a glass and fill it with scotch right to the top. No water, no ice. This is for La Belle Crawford, she said. She doesn't drink scotch, I said. She drinks vodka. I don't care what she drinks. This is going in her fucking face. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, I mean, I think this is real, you know? Like, it's... They were larger than life. And yeah. I'm sure they were having fun with it at some point. No, clearly dark they played place. into it. Yeah. Like that was yeah. like part of, you know, that was what sold tickets and whatever happened to Baby Jane. You see that in this previous episode. Like people were right. so excited to go see what they thought was real life of these two feuding in a house. Now, of course, the the show also goes into how they were egged on mm-hmm. by Jack Warner yeah. and by the director, oh, for sure. you yeah. know, to, well, for well, exactly that reason. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great uh, one of the uh, video clips on YouTube of Betty Davis. I, I forget what interview it's from. But there's kind of like an audience Q&A and someone asked her about Joan Crawford and she gives this kind of diplomatic answer with sort of a wry smile on her face about how what she's a good actress. And oh, I wish that I was, you know, oh, no, she always showed up and knew her lines or whatever. And uh, I wish I was half as beautiful as her. And she says, you know, but if you ask me on the street or something, you know, she said, but you basically it intimates if you ask me in private, I would have something very different to say about right. it. And she's <laughs> smiling and she's kind of laughing. And it's like, this was fun in a way. I yeah. mean, it was serious. Yes. But I think you're right, Mike, that like there was a kind of like wry tone to it. And like, it, you know, that it maybe shouldn't be treated as deadly serious as like some, you know, people want it to be. Well, and right. They were entertainers. <laughs> and at yeah. some level, they knew that that this is what they had to offer, you know, that, yeah. um at their advanced ages, which was like five years older than me, right? Yeah, now. no, they're in there. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's interesting that it's both Jessica Lang and Susan Sarandon 
are, Susan Sarandon are older than they were at the time. They are both yeah. uh, close to 70, and then these women are in their 50s. Yeah. And I actually looked it up because in the upcoming episode, Catherine Zeta Jones comes and plays Olivia de Havilland at the 1963 Oscars. She went with Betty Davis, and she is exactly the age that Olivia de Havilland was at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a good bit younger than Susan Sarandon, and Olivia de Havilland was a little bit younger than them. So that's interesting. She's yeah. great. I love her in that episode. It's yeah, been so long good. since we've seen her do much of anything. Yeah. Um, I wrote about it. Uh, when I went to a luncheon for Feud and sat at Susan Sarandon's table, but uh, which was a little scary. But after the lunch, I was taking the elevator out and Catherine Zeta-Jones was in the elevator. And I said to her, I was like, so... Because she had said on stage that she had wanted to work with Ryan Murphy. And mm-hmm. I was like, so um, you, uh, you're you in the, the troupe now. You're in the Ryan Murphy uh, you know, yeah. repertory company now. And she leaned back and put her head against the wall of the elevator and said, I'm in the troupe. It's everything I wanted. <laughs> and then the elevator doors <laughs> opened and she walked out in her heels to her like waiting black car. And I was like, Oh my God, she's fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, like a duchess though. When we went to TCA and they had the feud panel and you've got this like murderers row of amazing actresses and they're all up there looking just, you know, amazing and impressive. But then like, Catherine Zeta-Jones has this erect bearing and she's just sort of like sitting differently and just commanding your attention. I'm like, why Why did she go? I mean, this is a story we should talk about. And actually, I was listening to our friends of the pod, uh, David Sims and Griffin Newman, talk about on the Blank Check podcast when they did the Terminal episode is like Catherine Zeta-Jones' insane career, how quickly she got her Oscar and then how quickly she disappeared. Well, you want to talk about like Hollywood being a provincial town. Like she's married to Michael Douglas. She, she's in every possible club. Like she kind of gets to make all the connections she possibly needs to by being Hollywood royalty. I like to think of it as being her choice that she wasn't just going to take a bunch of shitty roles. But. Yeah, I mean, it was like a Grace Kelly thing. It's just yeah. like, great, I've ascended beyond the need to do this. Yeah. I mean, there, there are personal things in play in terms of her health and, and, <laughs> and children and stuff. Yeah. Um, and but health. yeah, but it was fun. Yeah, his health too. But it was fun just having this little sort of glimpse of her at this thing where it's just like, if she wanted to be, and I don't know if she does, maybe she does now, you know, she's like reannouncing herself, but like, mm-hmm. She's she's got that something kind of innately just magnetic about her. Yeah, I mean, television is now the place where we let actresses like that really do whatever yeah. they want. Like, we'll talk about Big Little Lies later. So, if yeah. she, someone can get her her Big Little Lies or feud, or I mean, she's well. She can be in Charles versus Diana. I don't know who yeah. she can play. Yeah. But. Also, she you know she she has been around. She did win a Tony yes. while, while while she was her film career was sort of on pause. Mm. Um, you know. <laughs> I'm really I'm I'm having a hard time finding a recent example of a big feud in any of these categories. Well, you I want to start uh, one? Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like I reference this all the time, but Karina Longworth's series on Joan Crawford, she talked about this a lot and she kind of compared the two of them to Kanye and Taylor Swift in that uh okay. Joan is Taylor Swift and is constantly rising to the bait that uh yeah. Betty Davis is putting out there and Betty yeah. kind of toys with her like knowing that she can't resist it. Right. Uh they're not having as much fun with it. Like I wish that they would have they would enjoy it. There right. was a period where they both seemed to be in on it. Yes. And then, like, Taylor Swift swung back to, like, well, I don't want to put blame on whoever, but, like, because Kanye is, sorry, crazy. But, like, and so is Taylor <laughs> Swift in her own way. But, like, you know, Taylor Swift just swung back to taking it too seriously. And I really wish. You're right. Yeah, that they had – she had more fun with, like, the – the crazy ways in which he is like, I don't know, I'm going to get in trouble for saying any of that. So I mean, I know on the male side, I, I gather George Clooney was was pissed off about the 2011 Oscars, but I don't know if it was more about. Uh, uh, well, I think he was annoyed that he lost to Jean Dujardin, but yeah. I, I don't know that it was so much like a personal feud. I think he yeah. just felt like 
silly that he'd gone think- out, worked that hard. You know, done all the stupid events and then didn't get it. I don't think he feels threatened enough by Jean Dujardin. Right. It's like, you know, and probably was annoyed that the movie didn't win Best Picture. I feel like there's more kind of heated stuff over Best Picture Mm -hmm. director. It's funny. I I mean, they just so they so they're so good at rarely letting that show. But I did hear like an off the record, an actress who recently won. Well, how much do I want to identify her? All right, blind item. An actress that you would know, you know, a year ago or two years ago, basically said, like, who do I have to, like, blow to get this award? And so, like, that's the thing they said, and whether in joke, in jest or not. Yeah. I would imagine, like, many actresses have said that. I feel like said, said that. 14,000 times a day in Hollywood. But, like, they don't let it show anymore, you know? Right. Yeah. But because they're playing the game. So we just need someone who, like is tired of but like the people who don't want to play the game don't care that they don't get the awards right so yeah i don't know it's interesting i'm like waiting for meryl streep to throw some bombs but she's always got her sights on larger targets speaking of blind items well actually before the blind item um clooney did later go on to cast dujardin in monuments men yeah so i don't think it was about the two of them i think he was just annoyed with the whole process which i get but i heard about a recent best actress oscar race um where one of the nominees was so loathed by the other nominees that uh they all started kind of quietly campaigning against her (laughs) um (laughs) and i hear this from credible source many people are saying yeah (laughs) i think the problem is is that like crawford and davis well again the world was smaller yeah. Um, and they were more pitted against each other in a way that hopefully women in Hollywood aren't yeah, so much anymore. I think women don't want to play into that. We want like Emma Stone and Brie Larson to be supporting each other and doing it really publicly because yeah. if we saw them like hence are them feuding with each other, it would make them not, they seem to be genuine friends, but it would make them look worse. It would make us feel worse. Like you want the it's, solidarity it's out of it. Politically. Right. Yeah. Solidarity is in. That was a whole narrative around Brie Larson and Casey Affleck, which is a different thing. But yeah. right, like we're we're so used to now seeing you know last year's winner anoint this year's winner and be like, oh, I'm just, here you go passing the torch, here you go, and then Brie Larson so actively not engaging in that this year, um, uh, not not actively, uh, subtly, and everyone picked up on it. Yeah, right. and I think with young actresses, kind of who tend to win Best Actress, like then they kind of cycle out of the system. This was a rare thing where you know this was this was. Betty Davis's potential third Oscar. Joan yeah. Crawford already had one. They were later in their careers. I mean, now that those kind of standards are different. I do think that we do have a, an awards feud coming up that we haven't talked about, which is the Tonys, mm. which is potentially, although I don't know if Glenn Close will be nominated because she's already won for Sunset Boulevard, yeah. but Patti Lapone has a show on Broadway and Patti Lapone notoriously she has does no fear of not behavior. like Glenn Close because <laughs> of the Sunset Boulevard catastrophe that happened in the 90s oh. uh, where Patti Lapone had done the show in London and then was expected to do it in New York and then Glenn Close opened the show in LA and Andrew Lloyd Webber decided to have Glenn Close open it on Broadway and not Patti Lapone. And Patti Lapone sued and got some settlement money and has a swimming pool at her house that she calls like Andrew Lloyd Webber's swimming pool or something like that. <laughs> and she has like chapters about it in her book. I don't know if Glenn is eligible, but they potentially will be at a lot of like Tony functions. Well, somebody needs to cast them in something together. That's if, what if we need. Work. Yeah. Then we need yeah. that's feud too. Yeah. 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 We need a Jack Warner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we need Patty Lapone at the Oscars. Like she yeah. just like she doesn't give a shit at this point. She can say whatever she wants and still have a career. So you also add the presence of Bette Midler to this mm-hmm. Tony season. Oh, yeah, and there's just Hello a lot. Dolly. There's just a yeah. lot going on. Right. I'm telling you. I'm, telling I'm you. intrigued. Yeah. yeah. So after last year's Hamilton Love Fest, yeah. we're gonna enjoy some uh, feuds at the Tonys. There's gonna be a big um, battle royale at Marie's Crisis. <laughs> <laughs> 
in, in early June. It will burn yeah. to the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's three more episodes of Feud left. We said there was an eight episode series. Yeah. And, uh, so, um, yeah, I'm fine. I don't, what's after, I, I don't get what they're going to do now. How do they have three Great more episodes? Great question. I mean, their careers both kind of ended. Oh, not long there's after no, that. there's the insane hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Thing oh, yes. Happened. They tried to make a sequel together or a kind oh. of a spiritual and sequel. And Betty Davis gaslit Joan Crawford out of her role and recast it with Olivia Dablin. It's insane. I can't wait for that. So Catherine Zeta-Jones will be back, yes. which is exciting. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So there, there is more story. Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte was originally called Whatever Happened to like Cousin Charlotte or something like that. It was supposed to be like a sequel to Whatever Happened okay. to Baby Jane. But Betty Davis is like, I am not working with Joan Crawford and like basically drove her into rehab. So or at least some sort of sanatorium. So we'll tune in. Stay tuned. <laughs> that is funny. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> So now we're joined again by our Hollywood correspondent, Rebecca Keegan. Rebecca, how is it out there in Los Angeles today? Um, it's hot and windy. The Santa Anas are blowing, which is, sounds romantic, but actually just means that everything's falling down. Which <laughs> <laughs> is some kind of romance. Yeah. Isn't there a movie where the Santa Anas play in? I'm sure. Several? I'm sure. I mean, I think Joan Didion mentions them a oh, lot in her right. writing. That's what I'm so, Probably other people have, too. Uh, the Joan Didion of the 90s, uh, Dylan McKay from 90210, has a <laughs> a scene where he's talking with Kelly about the Santa Ana winds and how you can kill a man. And, That's and probably what certain, I was thinking yeah. of. That's my favorite transition ever in the history of this <laughs> podcast. I do think of him as a Joan Didion in the 90s. It um, sounds like something from Magnolia. It's like one, yeah. of, the, one of the plagues in Magnolia. <laughs> it's true. Well, I'm sure the Santa Ana one's knocking things down. It's not a metaphor at all for the state of the Academy as, uh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> as they prepare. So uh, as we're recording this, they're having a meeting today. That's kind. Of, it's an annual meeting, but this year it seems to come with kind of added import because of the uh, Best Picture fiasco that things ended with. So uh, what are you expecting out of this meeting, Rebecca? Yeah, so the Board of Governors of the Academy meets every year in the weeks immediately after the show, and they have this sort of post-mortem, how-did-it-go kind of conversation, which is usually kind of bland, and they go over things like ratings and whether they were happy with the host. This year, obviously, is going to be a lot more interesting because of Envelope Gate. How the Academy handled it or should have handled it will be up for discussion. Many people, including some folks on the board, uh, like Perhaps Annette Benning, um, wife of Warren Beatty, think the Academy could have handled things a little bit differently in the days immediately after the Oscars. How so, Rebecca? What did they do and what do people wish they did? Right. Well, if you remember on on the night of PricewaterhouseCoopers issued a statement something like three hours after the Best Picture mix up and the Academy took much longer, I think something like 24 hours to say something. And really, 
did not seem to reach out in any kind of a way, in a personal way, to the people who were most directly affected, namely the filmmakers of Moonlight who didn't get the sort of moment in the sun that Best Picture winners normally get, and to the filmmakers of La La Land who had this sort of mortifying moment of having an Oscar for 90 seconds and then having it taken away, nor um, uh, Warren Beatty uh, and Faye Dunaway, who had to present the wrong envelope and then, at least in Beatty's case, seem feared that this will be sort of what's written in his obituary. Yeah. Who are people mad at? Does the blame lie anywhere beond PricewaterhouseCoopers, the one accountant? Because it seems like at the end of things, it seemed to kind of all zero in on him. It did seem to zero in on the accountant. And I I think some people have commented on that, that while he may have made the error in the moment, things were compounded by the slowness of the leadership of the Academy to respond. And so they're pointing fingers at Cheryl Boone Isaacs, who's the president of the Academy, Don Hudson, who's the CEO of the Academy. What makes it sort of interesting, I mean, people who run the Academy are constantly having fingers pointed at them for something. It's part of why that is such a difficult job and why you rarely see someone like, say, Steven Spielberg taking it. In the olden days, Gregory Peck, Betty Davis, these were the kind of people who ran the Motion Picture Academy. And it was kind of this figurehead job where they just wanted someone sort of glamorous to represent the institution. In recent years, particularly under uh, the the newest president, Cheryl Boone Isaacs, it's become more of a day-to-day job and a job where you really are a lightning rod for controversy. Isn't it also true that a well-put-together, well-produced show would have had some fail-safes for one guy screwing up because he's tweeting pictures? Like, wasn't there some concern that the envelopes were too hard to read and also that Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway refused to rehearse, which may have caused some problems, and maybe somebody should have stood up or at least made sure that they had properly countered for the fact that their most important moment of the night hadn't been rehearsed? It does seem like there were a sort of a number of little small mistakes that added up to arguably the biggest mistake in Oscar history. Certainly the envelopes, which had the super hard to read gold font this year for the first time. Oh, I were didn't an know issue. the font was new. That's yeah. a, you don't mess with a good thing. Yeah, the gold lettering apparently was different from how the envelopes had looked in the past, and they made it harder to read. And outside of the envelopes, the category name is written. So presumably if there had been this nice, big, bold, best actress print, Beatty would have seen it or the stage manager would have seen it. So even if the accountant screws up, it would have been really obvious to other people there. It's also peculiar that the accountant, after being told not to tweet, was apparently standing there in the wings using his phone and no one sort of noticed or asked him to stop. I will say that when there's that live show going on, everyone back there has a job to do and no one's job is babysitting the accountant. Right. You know, people's, <laughs> people's job is putting on a live three and a half hour television now show. Now somebody's will be. I yeah. Think. Right, right. Maybe now there will be a, a staffer tasked with just standing next to the accountants making sure they're not messing up. Yep. But yeah, I mean, you're right, you're right, Mike. There, there were this sort of small series of errors. I know that Beatty and Dunaway did come to rehearsals, but I personally, although I sat in on many rehearsals, I didn't see theirs. And from what I've heard out of them, they didn't go particularly well. You know, these are sort of Hollywood icons who are not known for being easy to work with or taking direction well. Most people come to Oscar rehearsals and they're really grateful for the stage crew kind of 
telling them where the microphone is going to pop up and which side of the stage they're going to enter from. These are two folks who don't sort of like to be told what to do. And I think we saw on Oscar night when you don't want to rely on the experienced crew, sometimes stuff can go wrong. Now, the Academy, you know, having a meeting and kind of assessing themselves in the past year and, and what's to come, despite the debacle of Envelope Gate, how do you think they would grade themselves on, you know, the 2016 slash 2017 Oscar year and, and all that? Because I think there were improvements elsewhere. Well, I think there's a lot of relief in the organization regarding the inclusion issue and the fact that this year's nominees had a lot more representation mm-hmm. um, after two years of Oscar So White. And major controversial rule changes uh, at the Academy, I think there was just sort of a big exhale that change seems to have come. Now, whether that continues and whether this year was kind of a fluke and then things go back to the way they were, I mean, that's sort of always something that will be on people's minds. There were a lot of ruffled feathers with those new rules. There were a lot of people who felt things were handled poorly, including, by the way, Steven Spielberg. I mean, not just kind of the fist shakers who you read writing open letters in The Hollywood Reporter. You know, well-known, working, established people in the industry were not crazy about how the new diversity rules were laid out. The speed with which they were rolled out and, and the implications, some felt that they were sort of targeting older members. So I think that this new board, which was elected after those rules were passed, are going to be sort of grappling with how to enforce them. um, And they're going to be sort of taking stock with how to execute these very ambitious new membership goals uh, that were set under the old board. They've also got this $400 million museum they've got to open, and they are, you know, furiously raising money for that. And they've got to deal with electing a new president and renewing potentially the contract of their CEO. So it's sort of an opportunity for major change. I mean, it's it's inevitable that there's going to be major change. And it comes at a time when the organization is really at a crossroads and really needs a strong leader. Rebecca, is there any chance that the Academy brings in their like Donald Trump type reaction figure, reactionary figure to roll back oh, some of this geez. stuff? I'm trying to think of who that person would be, and I would James love Wood. to interview Mel him. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, you know, um, each of the the governors are the people who run things. So there's this 54-member board. They meet once a month behind closed doors at the academy, and they're, they're the ones who run the show. And they're from the, that group will be picked the next president. I don't know anyone on that group who I would consider – in that category. Um, There are some people whose names are being floated who are sort of actually completely the opposite of that. Like Tom Hanks is one that people are talking about as a potential ideal uh, next president. We need him to run the actual country. So yeah, I think he was running for president. president. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And, And it's also hard to imagine that someone would want to step away from a, a thriving kind of busy acting career to take on all the work that this gig now involves, unless someone wants to run it, you know, the way Gregory Peck and Betty Davis ran it, which is, you know, you just kind of dip in and dip out. I don't know if that's possible in 2017. Who, who else is being floated around? Like what names are, are you hearing? Oh gosh. Well, one, one name that comes up a lot is um, Nancy Utley, the Fox searchlight executive who's on the marketing branch She's very well liked and she's great. great. And, and, you know, like Sherman Isaacs comes from a marketing background, but it's, it's a little bit early days. We'll see in the next couple of months as the, as the branches pick their sort of new governors, they'll be 
about a third of the board rolls over every year. So they will be voting in the spring for the new members. And from that crop of new members, we'll see potential president who will replace Cheryl Boone Isaacs in August. So expect this spring and summer to see a lot of campaigning for academy members votes, which is it's interesting because I don't even I don't know how much that used to take place. Now that is really if people want this gig, they really do have to work for it. Whereas before, I think people were sort of asked to take it and it, it was a much more casual thing. Why do you think someone would want this gig? I mean, it, it is really it paid? Hard. <laughs> because, like, the pres- it does. The, the president of SAG is not paid. Is that correct? You know, I don't I, I don't know if the president of SAG is paid. The president of the Academy is not paid. The okay. CEO of the Academy is paid. So right. Cheryl Isaacs for the last four years has not been paid by the Academy. And, um, you know, she has some other ways that she makes money, like she's a professor at Chapman University and stuff. But, yeah, this doesn't come with some cushy, you know, paycheck and lots of professional perks. And it comes with a lot of potential for criticism, not only do you become the sort of symbol of whatever people are raging about on social media? But you have 7,000 Academy members who call you every time something annoys them from the lack of parking at screenings to, you know, the major rule changes that were instituted a couple years ago. So I honestly don't, I cannot, if you're really in the heart of your career, I can't imagine it being an attractive thing to do. Although one person who I've noticed popping up a lot at Academy events, and it's got me wondering, is Laura Dern, who uh, represents mm-hmm. the Actors Branch. Mm-hmm. Among other things, she showed up at the um, Oscar nominees luncheon, and she took over what is one of the silliest and hardest jobs of Oscar season, which is reading the name of every single nominee and pronouncing it correctly. It it seems silly, but you stand at this podium and you read these names and she, it's kind of a a low glam gig. Ed Begley Jr. did it for years. And I found myself thinking, this is interesting that Laura Dern is doing this now. And I've seen her at a couple of other big Academy events. She spoke at the Governor's Awards in November. So she clearly seems to be elevating her profile within the organization, which got me wondering if she's thinking about a run. Well, after she wins her Emmy for Big Little Lies, only then can she do it. because oh, she's uh, so good in Big Little so good. Lies. She is so good in Big Little Lies. Maybe as Renata, she could run the Academy. I think <laughs> God, then she would terrifying. really get stuff done. Yeah, it would. Oh, my God. It would. Would she be the first transcendental meditationist uh, president <laughs> of the Academy? I guess David Lynch hasn't, diversity, does it, hasn't done know? it yet. I go. don't know. That is an excellent question. That would certainly be a barrier broken. Maybe they could open every meeting that way and it would really yeah. set things on a positive Oscar's course. Oscar's yeah. so transcendental. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rebecca, from everything that you're telling us and that we've talked about, it seems like the Academy, for all of the rule changes that have kind of shaken, shaken everybody up, it doesn't seem like there's going to be like big, massive overhauls coming. They don't seem like the kind of group, like Mike was saying, to bring a Donald Trump in to blow things up and start all over again. No, I think that, I mean, ultimately, it is still a predominantly liberal, LA-based group of creatives. I mean, it's not, again, a lot of the people who get the most attention do not necessarily reflect the wider group. They've also, interestingly, with all these new members, they've gotten a lot more international. So even as I say that they're LA-based, you know, they had, I think, members from 56 countries invited in the new class. So if they change, it's, it's almost always gradual. And I think it will be not toward a Trumpian figure, but potentially toward a more international figure or 
towards someone who is maybe a little more famous than the most recent president. I mean, I, I do hear people calling for within the Academy, like, it would be great to have an actor in that gig for the glamour sake of Even it. Even just someone you'd think twice about whining to. You know what I mean? Like, mm. are you really going to mm. call Tom Hanks and be like, mm, I'm like to Hanks. You know, <laughs> like, save it. Um, but I do think that That's the votes point. that they made on, on awards, first of all, totally screwed up my ballot because I yes. was predicting all kinds of cynical, like, you know, cranky old white people in the Oscars Academy. And they, they, they made some great picks. I, I feel like that the actual awards handed out signaled good things to come for whatever this new academy votes on right and now it's just incumbent on you know the people who make the movies to keep making you know to have another great year like we had last year sure but in other words if it's the same people who gave moonlight best picture going to vote on their next um Mm -hmm. president you know i think uh, hopefully uh i I would be optimistic about something good coming out of that nancy utley is a really cool person that would be a great pick yay the nancy utley campaign starts here yeah <laughs> everyone yeah. all you academy governors listening to this podcast uh, <laughs> go right. i don't know if she knows we just threw her hat in the ring but we just threw her hat <laughs> right. if you are an academy governor listening to this please do rate and review us on itunes <laughs> yeah <laughs> and get us on the screener list maybe yeah. Just, yeah, uh, and nice by the way too. call me after the meeting yeah okay? yes please. yeah rebecca academy is very governor. available for your tips i'm here for you rebecca thank you so much for uh keeping an eye on this and for joining us to tell us all about it hey thanks for having me that does it for this week's episode thank you so much for listening and uh, even if you're not an academy governor member please rate and review us on itunes we appreciate it and we love hearing from you uh also on twitter at little gold men that's a great place to talk to us and we've been keeping a close eye on it and we're all at vanityfair.com and on twitter ourselves i'm at katie rich richard rylaws and mike mike underscore hogan and joanna at jerothis this episode was edited and produced by alana milner and thanks to andy bowers and laura mayer at panoply and this week's award for the new category we want to see at the Oscars goes to Mercedes McCambridge as voiced by Richard Lawson. A mean, tipsy, powerful, rotten egg lady. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.